0: sheep. And how many of you have been watching and uh, got a couple of original songs? How many of you heard, What Shall It Profit a Man? Got a lot of hits on that. And today, Near My Mother's Heart. How many of you heard that? Yes, got a lot of hits on that as well. And uh, folks are uh, just encouraged to be in the Word. And it's encouraging to me that sometimes upwards and above Uh, sometimes even 80, 90, 100 people are having devotions with us. Just think about it. That's that's one of the silver lining, uh, unintended consequences of this whole crisis. We've got those devotionals going out and people are viewing and they're sharing. And it's exciting to me that when, when I'm listening to myself again and going back over it, that there are many, 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 many others who are being blessed and taking that, getting equipped and serving God. Well, amen. Welcome uh, to our service tonight. And uh, we've sung, Tell It to Jesus. We're we're in a study of the book of Galatians. Go ahead, take your Bibles, if you would, please. And turn to Galatians chapter 4 tonight. Galatians chapter 4. Galatianism is the false belief, the false teaching that you've got to add something to Jesus Christ in order to be saved. You've got to become a Jew first, or you've got to keep on trying, or keep on working, or hold on, or some other thing. If you've got the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart as your personal Savior, you are saved, and you are saved forever. That's what the Bible teaches. But there were folks who came along behind the Apostle Paul, to the churches that were in what is now southern Turkey, an area called Galatia, and they taught the people falsely that you've got to become a Jew and observe Judaism before you can be a Christian. Well, that is absolutely false. It was false then, it's false now. So I want you to follow with me as we begin reading in the fourth chapter of Galatians, beginning at verse 12. Galatians chapter 4. Verse 12, brethren, brethren, Adolfoie, that's people from the same source. You only get saved one way. There aren't two ways. There aren't several ways. There's only one door, only one. Only one Savior, Jesus Christ. Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me at all. Ye you know how, through infirmity of the flesh, I preach the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation or trial which was in my flesh, ye despised not, nor rejected, but received me as, as if I were, an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? You know, back at the beginning. For I bear you record that if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and have, give, and have given them to me. Am I therefore, that is in the meantime, become your enemy, because I tell you the truth? They zealously affect you. That's the false teachers. They zealously affect you, but not well. Yea, they would exclude you that you might affect them. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. And not only when I am present with you. My little children. Now that's a reference to uh, saved folks. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. I desire to be present with you now. And to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Let's pray. Father, it is very difficult for a servant of the Lord to watch what happens when folks backslide or when they get under false teaching or they drop out of church or they're not going to go on and, and do right. Lord, it's very, very hard. It, it, it wears on us and we need your grace. And I pray that you'll keep folks from that, from the evil that will result when we go our own way. I pray, Lord, you'll help us now tonight. Make this real to us, every verse, every word, for it is your, your word. It is inspired and preserved in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you ever feel like a preacher let you down? Say, boy, you're in trouble tonight, preacher. You know, it's possible for human beings to let one another down. And I'm sure... I hope to never do this, but I'm sure that it is possible that I might let you down. But I'll tell you somebody who will never let you down, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And as long as we see the man of God, the servant of God, those that are serving in leadership in the Lord's work, as we look at Jesus Christ, if we see them and view them as we view Jesus Christ, that'll help us not to fall out over minor misunderstandings or differences of opinion that might occur, might get rubbed the wrong way now and again But Jesus never lets us down. He never fails us. He will never, ever let us down. He is both caring enough and capable enough to handle all of our problems, all of our needs, all of our challenges in all of our life. I've got the the great song by A.A. Luther, Jesus Never Fails. Earthly friends may prove untrue. Doubts and fears assail. Boy, it sounds timely, doesn't it? One still loves and cares for you, one who will not fail. Jesus never fails. Jesus never fails. Heaven and earth may pass away, but Jesus never fails. Though the sky be dark and drear, that's, that's now. Fierce and strong the gale, just remember He is near and He will not fail. Third verse, in life's dark and bitter hour. This could be on a personal level. Love will still prevail, trust His everlasting power. Jesus will not fail. Jesus will not fail. Never fails. Jesus never fails. Heaven and earth may pass away, but Jesus never fails. Wow. He'll never let you down. I remember the statesman in one of their... Well, I've got it. It's an old dusty uh, LP jacket with an old dusty record in there from back in the early 1950s, way back when the statesmen were singing with uh, Hovey Lister and, and uh, Big Chief Wetherington on the bass and, and uh, Jake Hess on the lead. And they sang a song that just, I mean, it gets right down inside your soul. He will never let you down. No, no, no. He will never let you down. That's it. He'll never let you down. And praise the Lord for that. I have told you that a call to pastor is a call to lead. Let me add this adverb. The call to pastor is a call to lovingly lead. Lovingly lead. It is a stewardship with which we are entrusted, the very fragile in some cases, and perhaps wounded and hurting people that the Lord Jesus Christ Himself wants to minister to through us. We need to be His hands, His feet, His voice, And have a heart of tenderness and care and love. And even though I can't make your hurt go away, and I can't soothe your problem and and soothe your, your difficulties in your life, but Jesus can. I need to point you to Calvary. Pastor and people relationship is very important. I have never asked for, I have never myself experienced that we place the minister or the preacher up on a pedestal. Do not do that. The preacher has feet of clay, just like anybody else. The preacher is a man, just like anybody else, but he's God's man. Keep that in mind. And it's important to have a relationship like that. I've, I've told you before everybody ought to have three homes. You know, they ought to have a heavenly home where they've received Christ as their Savior and they're going home, they've got a mansion. And everybody ought to have a home of their own where, you know, they and the people that love uh, them can meet together, and they can have their own home. Everybody ought to have that. How sad it is for people to be homeless. But then it's important for us to have a church home, too. If you're listening, viewing right now, and you haven't got a church home, let me exhort you to find a local church. If you can't find a local church, we'll be your local church. Amen? Amen. We'll do what we can for you, best that we possibly can. You ought to have an up-close and personal relationship with a pastor who is an under-shepherd, under the great, good, and kind, uh, loving shepherd, Jesus Christ. He is, he is to be God's servant, and he is to serve in behalf of the hurts and the problems of people and try to be there. you got to have that relationship. I remember in our former pastorate there in California, one Sunday morning in Sunday school, I taught the Sunday school, uh, the auditorium class, and uh, I saw a familiar face slip in and a man sit down in the back. And afterwards, after Sunday school, I went back and introduced myself to him. And I said, don't I know you? He says, yes, I'm so-and-so. I am the head deacon at so-and-so Assembly of God down the road. Now, so-and-so Assembly of God was pastored by old brother Phillips. He had a voice that sounded like he had gravel in his throat. But he was a man of God who loved Jesus. Now, he and I differed on several salient points of doctrine. But we're going to the same heaven. He's saved by grace through faith, and even though he had some different ideas on some things, Brother Phillips and I developed a friendship. It got richer and deeper. I'll just tell you this, when he was buried, there was a service in his church that lasted three hours. There were eight preachers who participated. I was asked to participate. I was the only Baptist in the group. That's a fact. That's a fact. Old Brother Phillips, God bless his memory. He loved Jesus. He was a soul winner. But his head deacon was sitting on my back row in Sunday school. And I said to him, oh, my. Did Brother Phillips send you over here? Does he know that you're here? He said, no, he doesn't know. He said, he and I had a falling out. I said, let's stop right now. I don't know what you had a falling out about. Now, this is where some other Baptist preachers and I part ways. Because that man on that back row would have done no good for himself or the church if I hadn't said what I said next. I said, the Bible way, and I know, brother, you believe the Bible. The Bible way is for you to leave here right now, get in your car, drive back, and if Brother Phillips hasn't started the morning service already, you get with him and you you get right with God and with Him and you get back together. I never saw him again. But a couple weeks later, we were at a restaurant. Brother Phillips came up to me and he put his big old beefy arms around me and he said, You see this man right here? And he's saying it to everybody in the. See this man right here? This is a Baptist. This is the only Baptist I can stand. And then he said to me, I've never in like 50 years plus of ministry, ever had any pastor send me anybody back. Now, some of you are going to say, well, preacher, don't you think you could have kept that guy and changed his doctrine and whatever? Yeah, very very possible. But that was not one of my options. He had a problem with his pastor. Pastor and he had fallen out. And I know what's very important. I know this. You need to be saved. That's the first and foremost thing. But secondly, you need to have a church home and have a trust relationship with the man of God so that when things arise, when you when your kids go astray or when when the when the when you lose the job or when illness comes or when something happens, you've got somebody who can pray right then. Now I enjoy hearing some of the preachers that are out there on the airwaves and uh, we don't pick up any on television because we're not hooked up. But we, we, uh, I'm, I'm aware most of the preachers I listen to are dead guys. I love to hear Lester Roloff. Amen. 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 <laughs> and Oliver B. Green. I love to hear Oliver B. Green. So most of the guy and, and Jay Vernon McGee. Uh, so the, there's the, there's the uh, triumvirate right there. But, uh, but some of the people that are alive right now, are, are doing a good job, a decent job, a, a good, an outstanding job, perhaps. But I'm going to tell you right now, brother X Y Z, who's on the radio or on the TV, when you get sick, when you've got problems, when your family's falling apart, he's not going to come and pray with you and help like a like a pastor will. A pastor will. And unless I'm told not to visit, I'm going to visit when you got a problem. Uh, There was an article years ago in the Sword of the Lord, and it was entitled, What? The pastor doesn't come by your house? And then, that was in bold, underneath it says, Thank God he doesn't. Thank God he doesn't. The fact that he doesn't probably means that you don't have this problem and that problem and that other problem and that other problem. Please understand, he is tied up busy visiting those that do have those problems. And I like that. I like that. The, the old concept of the country parson who just drops in and has a cup of coffee and and, and takes I'm not going to say waste but takes half your mo- your, your morning and and uh, that's that is not the New Testament model the the pastor is engaged in a spiritual warfare and it is more intense now than it has ever ever been before the the world the flesh and the devil are warring against all kinds of people, all ages, people living longer, they got more battles, they got more problems, they got more needs, and the pastor needs to be able to deal with people so that they can face those challenges and say, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And they can claim the blood of Jesus Christ for victory over the old devil. Well, amen. We see in this passage of Scripture that we ought to be treating the man of God like he's a brother, brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. I have you have not injured me at all. He's saying, uh, I'm I'm like you are. We're humans. We're we're the same. We don't right now. We've got something that we differ on. At that point, they were thinking they had to add to their salvation, had to add to Jesus Christ, and he was going to show them otherwise. And uh, and so. There's a family relationship here. Now, sometimes in families, we may rub each other wrong, but we always make up. And when the big battles come, we always stand shoulder to shoulder if you're really part of a family. Uh, I believe that we ought to have a place in our heart for the people that are serving God, the servant of the Lord. So welcome them and guard against and reject uh, false teachers and, and always receive, accept and uh, do what you can for uh, the people of God. Now, I'm not doing this as a personal appeal. This is what we came to in the order, the chronological order of going through the Bible. This is where it is. If I were to ignore this because I would be fearful that somebody might think that I was self-aggrandizing and just looking for somebody to do something for me, then I would be a very poor minister of Jesus Christ, a servant of His, if I skipped Scripture because I thought that somebody would think that I was taking Uh, advantage of them. So I am not. That is not it at all. But preachers, from time to time, will be under attack. From time to time, preachers and people will fall out. There'll be misunderstanding. If they really get a chance to sit down, think about it, pray about it, God the Holy Spirit's going to say, you know, you ought to get right about that thing. You ought to settle that thing. You ought to pray about that thing and put it under the blood and move on. The longer we don't do that, the harder it is going to be and the more bitterness is going to arise. Jesus said when you go to the altar and and you bring your gift to the altar and you kneel down. How many of you remember reading this in the New Testament? You kneel down with your gift and you realize that there's something between you and your brother and sister in Christ. You're supposed to leave your gift at the altar and go make it right, right then. Don't wait till the end of the service or the prayer or whatever. Do it right then. Right now, God the Holy Spirit is revealing to you something that has gone down between you and some other brother or sister in Christ and it needs to be made right. And you need to go make a phone call or write a letter or go see that person and make it right. The best thing we can do in these difficult, challenging days, these last days in which we live, is to get right with God's people and go on. And don't let that thing become a root of bitterness. Restoration forgiveness, reconciliation, ought to be what we're all about. Amen. It's so important. So Paul is calling them brothers. He didn't treat them as enemies. He didn't even treat them as, as antagonists or, or the opposition or uh, the errorists. He didn't murmur. He didn't gripe. He just, he just, he just told the truth. He didn't complain about them. He didn't attack them. He treated them as brothers. And he beseeched them. He's not commanding or, or, or talking down to them, but he's begging and pleading from his heart as a true servant of God. He's begging them to be as he was, for he'd become one of them. He'd always been loved and and. Cared and shown affection by these same people. And now all of a sudden, he's, he's persona non grata. He is no longer on their good list. And he wants back in. But he wants back in the right way. Do You know, you can't, you can't restore a relationship unless you do actually put that thing, that difference, under the blood. You can't, you can't just do it any other way. You've got to be willing to, to stand on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ at Calvary in the empty tomb. Amen. It's got to be on the basis of what God does through Christ in our behalf. And so he's saying there's no bitterness. Uh, you, you haven't injured me, Paul says. Uh, I don't have any anger towards you. Uh, I'm not going to pick at you and pick at you. I have no malice against you. There it is. That's the heart of a true Christian. No malice. Love and affection, yes, but no malice, bitterness is a terrible obstacle to the work of God. It'll keep you from any success in the work of the Lord. Now, there are some preachers who, because they have been blessed with a position, a responsibility, let's call it what it is, they believe that they are somehow um, uh, made of Teflon and nothing will stick to them. And they can do anything they want to, say anything they want to, act any way, have any kind of attitude they want to, and it'll they, be all right because they're like Teflon. It's not going to be, it's not going to be, they're not going to be held responsible. In Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 1, Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep. I realize that pastors means shepherd here, but we can apply this principle. There is a woe pronounced, upon pastors who are so insensitive that they won't, by the blood of Jesus Christ and the empty tomb and the power that's available to them, try to restore a relationship. That is always our first joy and responsibility to get right, to try to help others to be right with us. Those sheep get scattered. That's a terrible, terrible thing. And what do you do then? I have never had the opportunity to deal with actual sheep, but I've dealt with a lot of the the two-legged kind. And I know this, when somebody is injured and then if we don't try to make it right, it can become a very deep wound and it can be almost beyond reconciliation and some people will even go to their grave with bitterness and anger and won't get right with their pastor or their church because of some reason, some obstacle that kept them from that. The Apostle Paul went back through time. He said, let's rewind the tape a little bit. And he said, you remember when I came to you, I had this infirmity of the flesh. And he does not, he does not expand on that. But when you see... In verse 15, where he says that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes. There are many commentators who suggest that he is possibly referring to his eye problems. In another place, he writes about writing without an amanuensis, a a secretary that he dictates to, and he writes down for him what he is saying. Parts of the Word of God were written that way with an amanuensis. And it was the very words that God was breathing that, that the, that the um, in this case, Paul is dictating and in an amanuensis, a secretary, uh, you know, was writing it down, scribe, that sort of thing. But he said, I'm, you see, I'm writing with my own hand. So somewhere in the course of it, he wrote, he said, here, give me that scroll. And he began to write and he wrote with a large hand. If you've ever seen some of my notes, You know that some of my notes are written with a large hand because of of perhaps the way I see. And Paul, because of the way he saw, he wrote with a large hand. So it's very possible that Paul is appealing to their memory and he's saying, when I came to you, I had this issue. Some have described this possibly as ophthalmia, which is an eye issue. And that's possibly it. But in the face of that health problem, and then when you consider... When you read how he wrote to the Corinthians, all the things that he went through in the course of serving the Lord, he'd been beaten with rods. Just the being beaten with rods, uh, we think of maybe being beaten about the body, but it was the habit of some in those days when they would punish, they would, they would turn the individual over on his back and get the bottom of the foot. You know, you know what I'm talking about? The, the bottom of the foot right there. And they would take metal rods and beat them in the feet until they broke the feet. So there you have the Apostle Paul who was beaten with rods until his feet were broken. And on those same feet, he walked all over the Roman Empire spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. So can you see old Paul coming up the way? Can hardly walk. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. He's been left for dead. He's been mistreated. He's been in shipwrecks. He's been in all kinds of ambushes. And, he, and the Lord has delivered him out of all of this. And he comes to the churches of Galatia. And he faithfully teaches, standing on those beaten feet, on those broken feet. He stands up and he, and he preaches uh, and teaches and does it for long periods of time, condensing it into maybe a few days or weeks or months and then moves on to the next place and the next place and the next place. And he does this. He's he's literally imparting to them what God has given to him. That's what the minister of Jesus Christ does. God pours it into him, and he in turn pours it into his people. One of our mentors back in the nineteen seventies wrote a book about likening the pastor and his people to to vapors and floods. Like the vapor in the in the The cycle of of, uh, hydration, the vapors go up and the rain comes down and the floods rise up and the vapors go back up and the rains come down. And that's the way it is to the people and back and to the people and back and to the people and back. That is the relationship between a godly servant of Christ. And I'm not saying that I am what I ought to be, but I, I know what the standards are. I know what the expectations are. And that is preach the word. Be instant in season. Teach, you know, we ought to teach the word. We ought to preach the word. That is the responsibility and the privilege of the pastor. Whether we are 100% well or whether we ache in our back, hurt in our feet, are sick in our body, or whatever it might be, we continue to do what God would have us to do. It was the late 1950s. My father had faithfully pastored a church in Northern California. So much so, he had stood against some things that were wrong. He stood against the Revised Standard Version that had come out in 1952, which is a wicked, abominable mistranslation based on the corrupt manuscripts of the minority text. And he stood for the King James Bible, and he would hold up the King James Bible just like your preacher does. You wonder where I get it from? i tell you what, it runs deep in this family. He'd hold the Bible. He says, this right here, right, right between here, this is the Word of God. This is it. This is it. That was my dad. Down south of us, there was another pastor. And that pastor was able to influence some key men in my dad's congregation. Now, I was just a little kid. I was 10, 11 years of age. That was it. I didn't know much of what was going on. But years later... An 80-year-old woman who, when she was in her 40s, had taken care of me as a small child. She was in the church over a cup of coffee when God allowed our paths to cross. She told me all the details. How my dad had stood in the pulpit, stood for the King James Bible, and how certain leaders in the church had been influenced by a pastor down south. And that pastor had designs on my dad's pulpit. Got those guys stirred up. My dad fought the devil, fought the world, fought the flesh, stood for what was right, loved the people, did, I mean, just, just did everything that a man of God ought to do. What a humble man of God. What a sweet man of God. What a great man of God my father was. But it wore on him and he eventually had bleeding ulcers. He was confined to bed. And I want to be careful what I say now because it's been a number of years and most of these people have gone on to their reward, whatever it may have been. But a committee of men, self-appointed, came calling on my dad who was confined to his bed with bleeding ulcers. And I heard them because I was just a wall or two away. I heard them in there demanding his resignation because he was so hard about the King James Version. He stood so true to this book. And they used all kinds of humanistic logic, man-centered logic, and I'm proud to say that my dad continued to pastor that church till God led him someplace else. And today, let me just tell you, that church does not exist as a Baptist church. In just about every case where they get rid of the old book, They get rid of their identity, their historic identity as an independent Baptist church. That church is no longer a Baptist church. It has another identity entirely. Let me tell you this, that men of God and lay people, those that will stand for the truth may go through certain trials and difficulties. And there may be a time when... As Paul describes it, where is the blessedness he spake of way back when, when they started out? They were on what you would call a spiritual honeymoon. And about the time you face off with that first group of people, I tell all those that are going into the ministry, and you will, it will happen sooner or later, the honeymoon will wear thin, and there will be some people who will take it upon themselves to try to rid the pulpit of of your Straight stand, your right stand for the Word of God. You be ready for it. You be prepared. Because they hated Jesus, they'll hate you too. Paul says, am I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? But speaking the truth in love, it says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 15. What's my my method? Speak the truth in love. Tell the truth. Preach the Word. Be instant in season. So these geizers, in verse 17, they zealously affect you. The only way I can, well, I can picture it with some of the events in the news, with some of the burning and the rioting and the mob activity. You know, not everybody that's a participant in that is necessarily a card-carrying member of the Communist Party because you see Your emotions can be ignited and stirred up in any group. We need to be careful to always keep the truth as the basis for our decision making and for our choices. The people in Galatia had been stirred up, zealously affected, not in a good thing, but in a bad thing, in a wrong thing. And it's possible for people to get more excited about error than they are excited about truth. We need to keep... The excitement level high. Um, Keep uh, enthusiastic about the truth. It's good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. Stay excited about the King James Bible. Stay excited about the independent Baptist, the local church. Stay excited about the old uh, hymns and gospel music. Stay excited about the things that are good. Stay excited about your marriage. Stay excited uh, about The opportunity to live for Jesus on the job. Stay excited about soul winning. Stay excited about tithing and giving and and, uh, helping missionaries and doing our part for the Lord. Stay excited. It's good to be zealously affected. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. He's talking about... Coming to full spiritual maturity. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3.18 It is so important for us to grow up, to mature spiritually. So that we can serve God better. It's not so that we can, you know, say, look at me. I'm somebody. I know all these doctrines. I know all this stuff from the Bible. But to serve the Lord effectively. He says, I desire to be present with you now. And it changed my voice. Like parents concerned over trouble that their kids get into. He wanted to be with them. Now, admittedly, emotionally, if your kids do something stupid, you want to be with them. Boy, you want to be with them. But let's say they're facing some consequences for their wrongdoing. We don't try to release them from learning their lesson but we want to be there with them as they go through it. And that's what a pastor feels towards his people. I'm not speaking down to you and saying you're kids, but I'm saying like children in that respect, even though the pastor is not your spiritual, you know, your father, like Father Winnegar. Don't anybody call me that. But I have that kind of relationship so that if you get in trouble... I and I can speak for my sweet wife, Gwendolyn. We want to be there to go through that problem to help you as you face that problem. It may be in the corridor of a hospital somewhere. Maybe a tragic experience. I don't even know what it might be, but I I want to be there. We want to be there and be a help to you because that's our calling. What we do is not a job. Thank you for. Supporting us. We appreciate that. But we don't do it for the paycheck. We don't do it because it's got a job description or it's part of what goes on the resume. We do it for the Lord Jesus Christ and for His glory and that He might be glorified and honored and that people might experience the fullness of what God wants them to have and to become. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Every head bowed, every eye closed. And how many of you tonight would say, Preacher, something and the Word of God, spoke to my heart today. slip your hand up high. Yes, God bless you. Amen. I can't tell you how much God loves you, but I tell you that He does more than I can possibly describe it to you. And if you've never been saved, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, would you pray right now from your heart something like this? Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I deserve to pay for my sins. I believe Jesus died to save me. Right now, I receive the Lord Jesus Christ into my heart as my personal Savior. Please take away my sins and take me to heaven when I die. Now, if you prayed that prayer meant it, would you slip your hand up, anyone at all?